Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. For some, dating is a game. It's kind of a sport, but one thing's for certain. I mean, it is hard out there, especially if you're single. And many of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I want to welcome you to our series, Great uh, Expectations. I'm Pastor Tim. Um, and over the last year, our community at Liquid, it's grown uh, quite a bit and kind of diversified. We have folks now from just about every major season of life, single, married, married with kids, single again. And as we approach this fall, our leadership team I thought it would uh, be strategic, kind of, to the health of our relationships with one another, to address the issues of relationships that go the distance. And tonight we begin our journey with RPMs, or Recognizing Potential Mates. And now, you might be tempted to think this is solely, you know, a message for those of us who are not hitched. And uh, that's true. I mean, whether you're a college student or, you know, 39-year-old professional holding desperately on a 35, uh, I'm hopeful that tonight is going to be encouraging to you. It's going to give you hope for what God may have in store for you. Uh, But for others, this is a critical message, too, because if you're married, this may be a reminder of some of the basics, some of the original spiritual priorities that you once practiced while you were wooing your mate, and now a few miles into the journey, you've grown maybe a little bit lax, a little complacent. How do you stoke those fires again? Listen in. And if you're married with kids, get ready. Your little girl maybe, you know, four or five years old right now like mine, but in 10 years, she's going to be asking for advice. You know, I want to go out with Jimmy so-and-so. You can't. You don't want to go out with that kind of boy. What kind of boy do I want to go out with? You ready for that? <laughs> RPMs, recognizing potential mates, God's way. Not Will Smith's or Hitch, but how does one go about discovering a soulmate? I mean, what should you even be looking for? Because we all have our preferences, you know, like short, you know, stocky, white male seeks tall, exotic Amazonian goddess, you know. But are there certain things beyond our shallower preferences that should be priorities? And if you're fortunate enough to discover someone you want to spend your life with, how do you even go about forging a romantic relationship with them that's a source of, you know, pleasure, not just pain? (laughs) Not just a source of delight, but divine, one that's blessed by God himself. Many of you have been in relationships that make you curse, but how about one that's actually blessed, you know? Well, the neat thing is that the God has not remained silent on the critical task of recognizing potential mates. Really, next to your decision to enter into a committed relationship with Jesus Christ, there is no choice, really, that's more crucial to the trajectory of one's life than the selection of a spouse. In fact, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you know we looked at the Old Testament story of, what was it again? Ruth and Boaz, to kind of unearth some of those key principles in developing a marriage bond that lasts for all time. But tonight, I want to invite you to turn back even farther, okay, all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to the very first book. Anyone know the name of it? Genesis. Okay, you can actually pull out your Bibles. We got them in the side pews there. Pass them out so that everybody gets one. Mike, we'll have a little bit of lights up at this point. Genesis chapter 24, because there's a story in this opening book that illustrates God's plan for recognizing potential mates. And this might surprise you, because this is the account of how Isaac, who is the son of Abraham, went about finding a wife. And this is actually kind of an obscure passage. I can't say I've ever heard it preached on before, but I think you'll get the gist of it if you track along. Genesis chapter 24. It's a long chapter. We won't read every verse. Just keep it in front of you and and track along as I highlight the key narrative turns. But the story begins with a scenario that's familiar and... All too painful, I'm sure, for many of you out there. One of my single friends said to me, you know, the worst part of being single to me is like, is my family. I was like, your family? I was like, you know, why? And and he was like, their harassment. Um, Whenever he returns home to visit his folks, they're like, you know, Jimmy, when are we going to find you a wife? You know, anyone identify with that? When are you going to get married, find a husband, settle down? 
Well, that's actually how this historical episode in Genesis 24 begins as well, with an older anxious parent wringing their hands over their single son. (laughs) Only in this case, the parent is Abraham, who some of you might know as the father of the Jewish nation, and he's actually the patriarch of the Jewish and Christian faiths. This is the original man whom God hand-selected to establish a covenant with. He promised to bless the world through Abraham, to make his descendants as numerous as the stars. And Abraham had a son named, does anyone know? Isaac, yeah, he was actually a miracle child, born to Sarah and Abraham when she was 90 years old and he was 100. So as this story opens, Abraham is old, old as dirt. And he's concerned because as any Jewish parent would be, he's like, my son Isaac isn't married yet. You know, Isaac, what's the matter with you? You find a nice girl, right? He wasn't from Brooklyn, but read with me. Verse 1. Abraham was now old, and he was well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. And now some of you are instantly confused, because you are, you are thinking, wait a minute, I thought you said Abraham was straight. He is, he is. Now just follow with me. Look what he says. He says, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go instead to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Something you need to know. Just stop right there for a minute, verse 4. In this ancient culture, putting a hand under someone else's thigh, first off, disclaimer, not recommended, not in this church, don't do it, all right, was actually a symbol of an agreement that was being sealed for good, a covenant that was being ratified. It's the modern equivalent of shaking hands. Imagine you're out in the lobby and say, hey, what's up, man? Hey, what's up with you? <laughs> no, <laughs> not, I know, I know. Yeah, do not do. <laughs> but it's like having a notary or public kind of say, no, this is a binding agreement. And what's happening in here is that Abraham's calling in this guy Eliezer. That's his chief servant. He's the head of Abraham's household. And he says, I want you to find a wife for my son Isaac. This is a critical task. This is vital to our whole family's health. And I want you to promise me something. You are not going to settle for a local girl. (laughs) There are plenty of local ladies here, but I don't want any of them. I want you to go back to my country, back to God's people, and find a spouse there. Now, shake on it, okay? And then, it says in verse 7, Eliezer, what? Put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham, swore an oath to him. And that may seem weird, but it's significant. Because you realize, what's the first priority? for recognizing a potential mate God's way, it's actually being willing to narrow the pool of possible candidates. And that's hard because some of you are like, dude, the fishbowl's already small enough. (laughs) But what's happening here is this. From the very beginning, God sets in front of his people a model for godly living. I mean, even if you're here first time and now you haven't been to church in like 20 years, you know a little bit, right? Later on in Exodus, he gives Moses these 10, um, what's it called? commandments. If you, if you want to live well, God says, do this, don't do that. Be sure to remember this, stay away from that. And the same is true here of choosing a spouse. In other words, God's setting forth a pattern or model by which he instructs his people to go about establishing a relationship that will last. And the first thing he tells them to do is to stay away from the Canaanites. Now, here's the deal. The Canaanites were like, what's the equivalent? It'd be like living in East Rutherford now. All right? Sorry, no, and some guy in the first service was like, dude, I live in Lodi, a little too close there. Imagine you're down in Seaside Heights, okay? Now, the Canaanites were simply inhabitants of this pagan kind of Mecca. It didn't have a boardwalk, but it was like kind of like a swamp, a fertile land in Mesopotamia. But it wasn't inhabited by godly people. In fact, 
Later on in Exodus 23, God specifically tells his people to avoid establishing any relationships with the Canaanites. He said, do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me. Because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. See, the land of Canaan was infested with idol worship. They did not share the faith of Abraham and the Jewish people who worship the one true God of the Bible. They were pagan people. Had many gods. Very pluralistic. And so God says, don't forge relationships with them. Stay away from the local girls. From the obvious, the easy route. Why? Because they will cause you to sin against me. The worship of their small g-gods will be a trap, a snare to you. In other words, it's rigged. When you go for the easy relationship with the local men or the ladies who you're at work with, you just out of familiarity, who don't share your spiritual faith, it will be disastrous to you. Your faith will be damaged. You're going to try to establish a lasting relationship on a faulty foundation. And that's what Abraham has in mind here. Remember, Isaac, his son, is in the season of life where he's ready to be married. I mean, it's like the next thing. And his father charges this servant, Eliezer, with the selection of spouse, which I know is hard for us to imagine because we don't, aren't used to, like, arranged marriages. But that was common in ancient culture. So what's the first thing that Abraham says is priority number one? Narrow the pool. Stay away from the local guys. Go the extra mile to find a godly gal for my boy and put your hand under my thigh to show you get what I'm saying. <laughs> and this really is basic rule number one, folks. You need to share the same spiritual commitments with those who you're considering as a potential mate. If you flip over, actually, to the New Testament, you'll find this expressed vividly in 2 Corinthians 6.14, in which Paul writes, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. We looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? In other words, Apostle Paul's writing here to people who say, I, I follow Jesus. And he says, great, here's the deal. I'm telling you, don't partner or be, or be yoked with others who don't share that same faith. Why? Because I'm prejudiced. They're less. They're inferior people. No. <laughs> Rather, he conjures up the image of a yoke where shoulder braces used to harness a pair of oxen and a team to describe the marriage relationship. And he says, if you team together with a man or a woman who doesn't share your commitment to God, what's going to happen? Well, think about it. When a team of oxen pulls in the opposite direction, one one way, one the other, they're naturally frustrated or torn apart. Worse yet, the more powerful of the two will end up overpowering the other. and It'll be a compromised partnership marked by domination. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? The worship of different gods is a trap. It's a snare to your faith. And that's why God forbid his people to intermarry among the Canaanites. Because he knew people did not, those people did not fear or respect his commands for holy living. Same thing. As people who follow in the footsteps of God's son, Jesus Christ, you're called to be in relationships with other Christ followers. Now, guess what this means? This does not mean like, let's do, boop, the bubble is descending. Do not associate with non-Christians. No, not at all, not at all. But saying if you're looking for it to partner with somebody in a binding kind of relationship, you want to find someone who shares your commitment to God. Because if you say you're a Christian, you mean God influences everything I do. All everything I decide on is filtered through that prism. And that means you're going to have to do something exceedingly hard and difficult from the outset if you're serious about marriage. That means you have to automatically wipe out 70% of the potential partners that you could hook up with. <laughs> you are saying that you're actually willing to wipe out, you know, over two-thirds of the people who could possibly be your mate. And a lot of people don't want to do that. You're like, what? What? No way. But the Bible says that we're to be joined together. Date and marry only those who are believers and that the Lord himself is a common denominator in their relationship. And that requires sacrifice, doesn't it? Because practically speaking, it may cut your list of potential spouses in half or in a quarter if you only date other Christians. 
But this is an initial act of sacrifice in God's word that tells us it's a foundational building block. And it's, this was inconvenient for Isaac. Because if, if you're thinking like, dude, that's unrealistic for me, think about Isaac. <laughs> it meant this guy had to wait, to not go with a list of local girls who were there every day and instead decline those opportunities. I'm sure there were many. You know, Miss, Miss Ho, you know, Canaanite homecoming queen. Sorry, not interested. Sorry, no, just not available. And Abraham's servant actually had to travel. Get this. He got donkeys, he got camels together, and had to go out into the desert, literally go the extra mile, (laughs) and set out from Canaan to find a wife for Isaac. It's called narrowing the pool, going the extra mile for a godly spouse. And that's hard in the real world, especially if you're single. And when you look around at, at, at your church or the circle of believers you know, and it's like there's no obvious prospects, but, you know, that guy at work, he's like so nice. He is, he's been after me for some time, and he's quite honestly nicer than most of my Christian friends, actually. <laughs> Seems nice enough. I mean, he's not a Christian, but he is open to spiritual things. <laughs> you know, what's the big deal? And so the hunt starts with a challenge from God. Would you be willing to sacrifice that opportunity because you want to do spousal selection so badly my way? God doesn't do this to test us or to frustrate us but for our long-term good. I mean, regardless of what religion you are, this makes sense. Let's say you're not a follower of Christ. I know we have many among us, and you are welcome here, by the way. We have designed this church for you. (laughs) But let's say you're here tonight as uh, as an agnostic. You you have doubts. You aren't so sure that religion is for you. It makes you nervous when people talk about God, use the Bible as like, oh, the handbook for living. It seems extreme. Question, why would you want to date a devout believer? (laughs) Someone who's serious about their faith and calls it central to their life. You, you'd be unequally yoked. Let's say you're a Buddhist and you take your faith seriously. Why would you hook yourself to someone who has a totally different conception of the afterlife? If you take your faith seriously, you're actually going to be odds from the start with them. That's what unequal yoking is about. Because when a person's faith is central to their life, a couple will inevitably be torn in two different directions if they take it seriously and the other doesn't. In his fine book, How to Get a Date Worth Keeping, Dr. Henry Cloud says this, and I'm going to put a couple of resources on here tonight. We'll put uh, links on the web to them if you want to pick them up this week. He says, deep spiritual learnings, leanings are what I call a direction setter in life. Unlike other differences, such as one's interest in a hobby or a taste in home decor, some differences actually pull at the direction a marriage or family takes. The desire for children is an example of a direction setter. If, if one person wants a child and the other one doesn't, it pulls the couple down different life paths. A vocational call can do the same thing. If one spouse wants to spend his or her life doing economic development in a third world country, and the other wants to develop architectural designs for suburban shopping malls, they're going in different directions. These issues can divide people's time, energies, and resources. Devout spiritual beliefs set directions in families. How will kids be raised? What values will they be taught? How will you spend holidays? How are you going to explain to your children why one faith is right for you and another is right for the other? What do you do when one wants to give money to their faith and you don't share that belief? Think of the tension between a husband who wants to tie to his church and the wife wants to spend that money remodeling the house. He says this. He says, for devout Christians, the issue goes deep. One's devotion to God can be compromised if one tries to keep a spouse happy who doesn't want him or her to be so spiritually committed. It tears the person of faith in two directions. A spouse can easily come to resent the time and attention given to God. So the first directive from God is clear. Don't. Be unequally yoked. Don't compromise with the Canaanites. Not because they're inferior, but because your faith will be at stake. And if you're really serious about your faith, would you sacrifice at the altar of marriage? Or is marriage that much of an idol for you that you'd be willing to actually have your faith take a back seat? 
narrow the pool as hard as it may be, says Abraham to Eliezer. I know this is going to be rough. It's going to be a much longer journey. It's going to be harder in many respects, but swear to me, you'll find a godly wife for my son. I have never grabbed my leg so much in a sermon. <laughs> Just thought a woman who shares my son's commitment to the God of the Bible, to have Isaac stay and, and marry locally would be easier for sure, but it's critical, folks. He was like, obey God in the who as well as the where when it comes to recognizing potential spouses. Now, here's the deal. I want to be very careful here because I also know that some of us here actually are already in marriages with spouses that don't share our faith. And here's the deal. I have no condemnation for you and neither does God, not one ounce of it. I want to be clear on that. This is not a, like a call to like forsake your commitments to pagan people or you know, rethink your love or pull back in any way. In fact, the opposite is true. If you're a follower of Christ and your spouse is not, you know what the Bible says to do? You actually had better kick it in the gear and love him or her even more. In 1 Peter 3, women are given this counsel. Peter says, be good wives to your husbands, responsive to their needs. There are husbands who, indifferent as they are to any words about God, will be captivated by your life of holy beauty. In other words, you are to stay and serve in that relationship as a model of God's love for your non-believing husband or wife. Most likely, you are the most powerful influence and exhibitor of God's care and provision in their life on a daily basis. And he's like, you are to serve them, be faithful to them, pray for them, and just love them, love on them unconditionally so they can get a taste of God's love real time through you. And here's the deal. Don't preach. You don't need to preach to your husband. Look how the NIV renders this verse. I love this. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And now it's interesting because I know there are some people in here who are like, I don't believe this whole Bible thing, but I'm going to remember that verse. <laughs> when she comes at me the next time with, you got to do that. No, no, no. There's something in that, that Peter thing, right? No preaching at me. In other words, he's saying under the circumstances, you know what? The best approach is one of loving service to your husband or wife. The kind of self-giving love that Christ showed you. And by being an exemplary spouse, you will serve and please your mate. And at your very best, your husband or wife is going to say, I don't share your faith, but go for it, because it's a benefit to me. (laughs) Or at best, they're going to come to see God's love and say, there's something to this, and make their own commitment to follow Christ as well. I actually have several friends who wound up, you know, marrying nonbelievers, and eventually, through the godly impact of their lives, they became believers as well. God works in and through our choices in spite of us most of the time, but here's the deal. This is not an excuse for, like, missionary dating. If some of you are ever like looking for that, like you're doing, like, well, this is good because this is my calling. It's my ministry. <laughs> I go out there into the alleyways and the bars, and I kind of, you know, connect with them and bring them in, and they know my love, and they'll know the love of God next. No, <laughs> that's playing with fire, and it's actually the mark of a weak faith. If you're not currently in a relationship, it's a pretty straightforward principle. God honors us when we are willing to sacrifice the easy thing for the better thing when we narrow the pool and leave Canaan so that we can discover God's best for us. He wants his best for you. Do you believe that? He wants the best for you. Abraham did. And so he sent Eliezer out, actually said in verse 6, said, make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven who bought me out of my father's household, my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me an oath, saying, to your offspring I'll give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. And notice something interesting. In other words, Abraham saw that marriage had larger implications in the grand scheme of things. He relates it back to this promise 
that God says, I'm going to bless you and your offspring. And, he's, and that's a great perspective. Because what might start out as just a date can eventually impact the whole trajectory of your entire life, your family, your children, your future. So much of it is related to God's larger story that we ignore his direction at our peril. So Abraham continues. Follow along. Look at verse 8. I'm not going to put these up here. Look in your scripture. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. Verse 9. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham, swore an oath to him concerning this matter. And then the servant took ten of his master's camels, remember that number, ten camels, and left, taking with him all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram, Neharam, and made his way to the town of Nahor. What happens next is interesting. Because of all things for Eliezer to do in his pursuit of a mate for Isaac, guess what he does first? Verse 12, he prays. Then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing beside the spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. In other words, stop right there. When it comes to dating, what's he pray? Give me a sign, any sign. And many of you have done that one. You know this one? When, Lord, when I go to this party, just give me a sign. You know, remember that like 90s Ace of Base song? I saw the sign. You remember this? <laughs> I, won't, yeah, I won't butcher it for you. The larger principle is that he entrusts this process to God and he actually says, God, I want your guidance. And that's a great question for you singles. How many of you have, maybe you've, you've hoped for a spouse. I've been like hoping. And you, I've spent significant energies trying to find a potential man. I'm reading a lot of books. But have you really sought God out about it? And I don't mean like, Lord, I want to be married. Show me the one kind of deal. I mean really wrestled with God about it and asked for his specific direction. In Jeremiah 29, God actually says to his people, he says, I know the plans that I have for you. And they're plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to actually give you hope and a future. Then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Do you believe that? That God has plans for you. In other words, blueprints that you don't even see. Or have you kind of given up on that? That his intention towards you are actually truly good, full of actually hope and a future. Because I know the temptation, especially if you're older, it's to, you know, it's to get lonely and wonder if this whole thing is just a cruel joke. Maybe you didn't even want to come tonight. You didn't, I don't want to hear one more message on relationships, another painful reminder of how alone you feel. You are not alone. God cares. He cares about your life. He cares about your heart. And he wants to talk with you about it. Call upon me. Come and pray to me. I will listen to you. You have my ear. That's what he says here in Jeremiah 29. Seek me with all your heart. You'll find me. And you know what God promises when we seek his kingdom and his righteousness first. He actually says all those other things will what? Be given to you as well. So take heart. There is one who cares. Who cares about your heart. Knows your needs. Knows your desires more deeply tonight than even you do. And this is the truth. He's plotting something. You may see no evidence of this at this moment, but God says, of course not. I have plans for you, and I alone know them. 
they're full of hope towards you in a future, even if you feel hopeless and anxious about the future. And this, God's like, I want to let you in on them. He does. He tells us to seek after him, to inquire and ask for direction. And that's what Eliezer does in his search for a potential mate for Isaac. He says, oh, Lord, give me success today. I'm, 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 I'm putting this marriage thing front burner. Show kindness to my master Abraham. And then he goes in this whole thing. He's like, see, I'm standing here beside the spring. He's just like talking with God. It's like people are coming out to draw water. May, may it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar, and can I have a drink? And she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one that you've chosen. He asks God for direction. In this case, kind of a, an unusual sign. He says, look, I've been traveling over like all these miles through the desert with all these camels. How many? Ten of them. We're tired, okay? The dating adventure can be exhausting, no doubt. But I want you to show me, Lord, a woman whose character shines. Show me a woman who's like heads and tails above, a woman who will give me a drink and, and water my ten camels too. Now, this is funny, okay? So track with me. Because these crazy words are no sooner out of his mouth than what happened. His prayers are answered. Look at verse 15. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was a daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. And the girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No one had ever lain with her. And some of you are like, of course. So she went down to the spring, filled her jar. We'll get back to it. And came up again. Verse 17. The servant hurried to meet her and said, please give me a little water from your jar. And verse 18. Drink, my lord, she said. And quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they've finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. Now this is kind of crazy, but the reality is, think about this. Eliezer is sent to find a spouse. And what the first thing he does when he meets this beautiful virgin girl, what's he say to her in verse 17? How about a drink? <laughs> My, how things have changed over the centuries. It's like a pickup line is a pickup line is a pickup line, right? Actually, this is much more than that. What is the sign, the subtle evidence of character that surfaces this girl as God's answer to his prayer? She not only gives Eliezer water, but offers water to his camels too, which I know you're like, 10 of them, I get it. And this may seem kind of strange or incidental, but it's not. Check this out. A camel that has gone without water for four days, how many gallons do you think it takes to actually replenish water in that camel? You want to take a shot? How, are you a zoologist? 20, you said 20. Yeah. Do I hear 25? 25 gallons for one camel after four days' journey. Ancient jars used for drawing water held no more than like three gallons. In other words, this means that this girl, Rebecca, within moments of meeting this man for the first time ever, total stranger, offered an incredible act of service and sacrifice. If you do the math here, it meant that if she would water 10 of his camels, she went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, 80 to 100 times from that well, which was an incredible reflection of her servant spirit. One of the foundational priorities for any relationship that's to go the distance. See, the hospitality of Abraham's day required women actually to go to the well and offer water to weary travelers, but not their animals. So Eliezer was he's like asking God, show me a woman who will actually go beyond the expected Lord. Notice Eliezer didn't ask for a woman with looks or wealth. He actually didn't see it. See, like, oh, send me a virgin. He, didn't. he knew the importance of heart. 
of an inner spirit of beauty, kindness, and compassion, which are of great worth in God's sight. Rebecca had physical beauty, yes, according to the scripture, but that's not what sets her apart, is it? No. It's that inner beauty that marked her as the answer to the servant's prayers. I mean, what kind of woman runs back and forth to a well a hundred times to slake the thirst of some nasty camels for a stranger she barely met? The marrying kind. (laughs) And not even counting the camels, this runs totally counter to the way most of our culture typically evaluates a potential spouse. I mean, let's be honest. In fact, better yet, I'll stop talking. Let's um, take a real-time look at what most folks are focused on in 2006. I want to go online to a website I'm sure none of you have ever visited. (laughs) Behold, Match.com. And some of you are like, what? I've never seen it. Uh, What's it sell? Fire? I don't know. What is is this? (laughs) We're just going to go in here. And what I thought is we would start a new account, actually, and type a profile in here and see what we get. And I'm going to, our username will be Camel Boy. (laughs) And we'll just say Isaac at liquidchurch.com. And I'm going to say I'm a man seeking a woman, even though I shake by the thigh. It's all right. January 1st, we'll just make it the second. Now, I'm guessing they don't have 1450, you know, B.C. in here. So we'll just say 1919. And um, let's just see what happens here. (laughs) Get my starter kit. Let's see what we get here. Okay, am I in? Now, does that that mean that I'm in here? I'm going to type up here, Camel Boy. I hope so. This was fun kind of at the first service. Password. Now you can hack my account. Password is password. We didn't recognize the username. Okay, does someone have an account we could use? (laughs) There were no takers at the first service either. Okay, well, I'm just going to sit on this for just a minute because the amazing thing is when you get to the second page of this thing, this guy comes on and he says, hey, welcome to the most exciting connections out there on the internet. And he talks about what you're interested in. And it takes you to this page where it says, answer a few questions and we'll get you going. You know what the first question is? How tall should he be? Second question, what color eyes do you like to stare into? Third, what kind of hair do you like to run your fingers through? I was like, what? (laughs) And it says looking for certain body types, and it's like toned and muscular and like, you know, a little paunchy. How much money should he make? I kid you not, you can look at it tonight. Without a doubt, our culture places an emphasis on the externals. (laughs) This is no shock to any of us. We, love an, we live in an unprecedented era of superficiality where appearance is everything. And many people believe their self-worth comes from their net worth. For guys, it's like the temptation to be obsessed with, you know, height, you know, hips, hairstyle. For women, maybe it's financial security or affluent lifestyle is most important. And into this web of, of this tangled web of conflicting priorities comes God's words, which says, actually, um, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. In other words, as we said a couple of weeks ago, don't believe the bling, (laughs) remember? We all know women and men who put a primary emphasis on physical appearance, on what the people wear, on what they drive, how good they look when they pick them up. But Peter says, don't believe it. If you're looking to, you know, hair color and outfits and the wallet, that's a smokescreen. You can't see what's underneath it all. Instead, true beauty comes from your inner self. It's about character. The beauty of a servant spirit. That's what counts in God's eyes. And our world has never been more, you know, appearance obsessed. Look at, the, you know, the magazine rats, right? Uh, who is it? Uh, you know, uh, uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, they combine them. What do they call her? Brangelina. Brangelina. Who's Tomcat? Right? 
Mission Impossible guy, you know, and the, you know that adulteress. And now they have a cute little baby. Oh, yeah, it's all great. You know, the whole thing, it's, a, it, it's, it's based on this. And most of them are unhappy. Folks, if you find someone who is about living a certain lifestyle, needs to live in a certain zip code, drive a certain car, you're to head for the hills. Because you're supposed to look at the inner character in the person you may be considering marrying and see if they're willing to water the camels. So, if we're going to have some fun, I would write a personal ad right now here on Match.com. I'm sorry this didn't come up for you. We're starting to type it in the first service. But I started typing in here, and I was like, okay, first thing, me. Not interested in local ladies, willing to wait for a godly guy. Then I was like, you, must love camels. And, uh, you know, and desert creatures. It's interesting. But in Proverbs 31, guess what? God writes a personal ad. <laughs> I want you to turn to this. This is actually in Proverbs 31. It's on page 1066, and it's under the heading, Epilogue, the wife of noble character. And remember, Proverbs, right? Wisdom literature, wise saying. How does the entire book of Proverbs end? With advice for recognizing a potential spouse. Read with me. Start at verse 10 here. Look at this. This is God's personal ad. A wife of noble character, who can find her? She's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She's like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still dark. She's industrious. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She's financially savvy. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She's not talking about like going to the gym and like toned arms, no. Verse 18, she sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. Again, the emphasis on character all over, on industry, a willingness to work and serve and provide care for others. Verse 19, in her hand, she holds a distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. In other words, textiles. Verse 20, she opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. Again, quality number two, compassion. She extends her hands to the needy. These are the things that count, folks. Everything that's eternal and of great worth in God's sight and that will make a marriage successful over the long haul. If you skip to verse 25, this is interesting. She says, she's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, not gossip. Faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Now listen to this, verse 30. Charm is what? Deceptive. And beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Proverbs is a book of wisdom, the wisest principles of all time. And the entire book ends with a picture of a woman with the strongest of character, wisdom, skill, and tender-hearted compassion. It says, if you can find that, better than rubies. But many, you know, many people have the mistaken notion that the ideal woman of the Bible, by the way, is this like retiring, you servile, entirely like domestic. And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, there's no doubt this woman's an excellent wife and mother in Proverbs 31. But guess, look at this. She's also a manufacturer. She's an importer, a manager, a realtor, a farmer, an upholsterer, and a merchant. It's like she's an entrepreneur, <laughs> but with a heart. <laughs> her strength and her dignity don't come from her amazing achievements, however. Rather, in the end, they're a result of what? Her reverence for God. And everything else flows out of that. True beauty. In our society, where physical appearance counts for so much, it may surprise us to realize that actually... Her appearance is never even mentioned, is it? 
Her attractiveness comes entirely from her character. Because in the end, that's what lasts, folks. And that's what builds a strong marriage. Life is not lived at the level of Hollywood passion and romance. A marriage gets its chops from all the long miles logged in between ignition and takeoff. And when you tether yourself to someone who's all about the flashbang on the service, it makes for a spark, but it's not a fire you can warm yourself by for the long term. Question. Why do you want to find a man or a woman who's content and willing to water camels? (laughs) Practically speaking, because that's what marriage is really all about. I remember when Colleen and I had our first baby, our little girl Chase, and Chase was just a year old. She didn't have, um, you know, colic or something, but one week she got like totally like croupy, like (sighs) cough. We thought she was getting better, then got a fever, diarrhea, the works. Now, this was like our first kid and everything. Me and Colleen, you know, trying to sleep, and it was like every 15 minutes, and we're like, we're like no, honey, we're a team. We're going to do this thing, you know? But by like 3.15, I'm like, you get just, just to help the demon child do something. I don't, just let me sleep, you know? Every 15 minutes, Colleen, into the nursery to, you know, hold her, change her diaper, et cetera, and through the night, finally the clock right about 4.10, and I wake up like totally disoriented. I like stumble into the hallway, and I see Colleen just rocking that baby back and forth, shh, Slobber and spit all over her shoulder. This went on for four days. Bleary-eyed, it stunk like a pig pen in there. Folks, that's what marriage is made of. That's what the journey looks like many days. And if you aren't building on the foundation that will keep you committed, first to serving God and then to serving and sacrificing for one another, you're in for longer nights than the one I just described to you. A couple of weeks ago, I you know, emphasized the importance here of observing the, the ethic of a potential spouse. Are they willing to humbly serve? And I told you, if I were new to a church <laughs> and I wanted to find a flower worth picking, you know where I'd go? <laughs> straight downstairs or straight upstairs to the volunteer teams, to the women who are working and sacrificing with our kids at Liquid Kids, teaching them, corralling them, giving them candy, keeping them from setting everything on fire. A woman <laughs> of noble character who can find her. The women who click in the PowerPoint and keep all the media and everything going, who arrive early to set the stage and write name tags. I'm not making this sexist because a lot of men do that too, but I'd go straight to the people who are spending themselves in behalf of something larger for which there's actually no payback except God's pleasure. You see that? Character counts. It's foremost in God's eyes, and it's essential to a marriage that lasts. It's interesting, but... um, if I were to round out, and if you are taking notes, and I was going to put my last little thing in Match.com, I would also say, um, by the way, um, nose rings and piercings, a plus. Look at verse 22. <laughs> when the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring, weighing a becca, and told two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels, and then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? In other words, God may not like jewelry, braided hair, but he's into nose rings. And piercings. This is actually a significant response by Eliezer because when he gives when he gives her this nose ring and puts two gold bracelets on her arm, in that culture he's doing one thing, and everyone would have gotten it. He is publicly declaring his intentions that I am going to take this relationship with you all the way to the marriage altar. He doesn't play around here. None of the usual games we often play in our Western dating culture. You know, we like the idea of like, well, you know, dating, you know. Friends with benefits, you know, that kind of thing. Or, or we'll keep going out until, like, you know, I just kind of figure out, like, you know, what I want, you know. No, no, none of that. <laughs> He's like, I have found a woman among girls, a woman with character. And it's obvious that Eliezer represents a man among boys because boys play games. That's what boys do. 
In the relational realm, we all know of people who string others along, as if romance is a game to like simply be won or is an end in itself. You kind of string it around and keep it wishy-washy for a long time. That's not love. That's called selfishness. In Matthew 5.37, Jesus says this to his followers. He says, um, <clears throat> when you relate to each other, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. In other words, don't play games with one another. When we're not up front with our intentions or we disguise our true intent and prefer to string things along, you know, even in a relationship we know doesn't really have a future, but we prefer to do it because it's just kind of fun for the moment, then we're actually being manipulative and destructive to someone made in God's image. And it's the opposite of love, which sacrifices for the care and growth of the other. Instead, we're concerned only what we can get out of it, not give to it. And here's the deal, folks. You're made in your father's image. And God is a man of his word. And guys, he asks us to be men of our word. Maybe you're in a relationship right now, and it's actually time for a little DTR to find the relationship talk. <laughs> Let this be your impetus to have it this week. I, I'm the, I am the poster child for being doing the wrong thing on this. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, Chris is like, oh, you better say what you did. I dated for eight years with Colleen, <laughs> my wife. I, regre- I really regret that. And for two reasons. It, it did hard because she never lets me forget it, one. Three reasons. (laughs) The second, it did harm to her along the way. She will tell you. She's like, I began feeling like in fear. Like, what's wrong with me? This guy, we've dated five years, six years, seven years, eight years, and he can't make up his mind? She started getting resentful of her friends, like who were getting married along the way. But but most of all, I was, I recognized when I, in hindsight, I'm like, I was not remotely offering her my strength as a man. Instead, she got my indecision as a boy. I realize now I was more unsure of myself than I was of her, which likely she meant she should have really had second thoughts about me. <laughs> I thank her for her generosity. So be upfront with potential spouses. Do we have a future together? And I know that could be a painful talk, and most men would rather have a tooth pulled out, you know, by a speedboat. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's part of dating with integrity. I don't know where the speedboat came from. Make your intentions known. Let your yes be yes, your no's no. And if you both believe you've found a date worth keeping, then don't keep it to yourselves. That is, once you think a relationship is heading towards marriage, you need to, us, open to the advice of others. What? And you're like, what? And this runs counter to every instinct as well. We've all had, look at this in verse 47. We've all had nosy or super critical friends who have spoiled relationships. And so understand, I'm not talking about like, Open up your date to target practice. Like, take a survey. See what everyone else thinks of him. Like, say to your girlfriend, tell me all the flaws you see in Roy. No. Something interesting happens here after Eliezer says, Rebecca is the excellent candidate for marriage. Remember the process, right? He left the ladies, but local ladies behind. Ask God for our guidance. Prioritize godly character. And then he finds that. He declares his intentions. But now he does something else. He meets Rebecca's brother, Laban, and does something risky. He's like, okay, big brother. What do you think? (laughs) Is Rebecca ready for marriage? Do you you think a union with Isaac would be blessed by God? That's the bulk of the remainder of this passage. We've run out of time, but he basically recounts the whole episode with the camels and the nose ring and asks him in verse 47, he says this, I put the ring in her nose, the bracelets on her arm. Look at verse 49. Now, if you will show kindness and faithfulness to the master, tell me. And if not, tell me. So I know which way to turn. In other words, He asked Laban for his input. Do you think this is a good idea? I know we've only met, but you know your sister pretty well. Do you think this relationship has a future? And that is an incredible mark of maturity for any dating couple to exhibit. 
to open up your relationship to trusted friends or family and ask for their input. And I understand that can be dangerous, but listen, the idea here is to get godly counsel from those who know you best because we all have blind spots and love can make the most clear-eyed among us just kind of, you know, blind with fuzzies. And so you invite trusted friends, not a lot, but those who know you best to weigh in when you're making decisions that will affect the rest of your life. Uh, Honestly, it is always a red flag for me when I counsel young couples who tell me they want to get married, but they're like, they have no support from those around them. I'll see it. They'll sit in my office, you know, and I'll be like, I'll walk in, I'll be like, oh, okay, okay, you can stop making out. Let's go. (laughs) Because they're all together. They're all into one another, hand-holding, fuzzy-wuzzy, starry-eyed, and I'll be like, okay, great, I see you're in love. So what do your parents think? And they'll like get this look. And like the needle, like, off the record, like, well, we don't know. We've stopped talking to them. Oh, okay, what's going on with that? Well, Jack's parents are, like, impossible. And, and, and is that true, Jack, or your, your parents are impossible? Yeah, but, I mean, not compared to Jenny's mom. She's just plain nuts. <laughs> Red flag right there. And it may be that Jenny's mom is crazy. That may very well be true. She may be nuts. But she knows some things that Jack doesn't. And she has some experience and insight into raising her daughter over the course of two decades that may be helpful in maturing their relationship. And that's the main reason we avoid the counsel of others when it comes to relationships, isn't it? We're concerned that it may expose some flaws or weaknesses and thwart our plans. Well, here's the deal. Those flaws or weaknesses are going to show up sooner or later. It's just your choice. You want to show up sooner so you actually have the chance to actually address them, grow and work on them. Or do you want to wait till later, till you're actually in the pressure cooker that is marriage for them to surface? The book of Proverbs contains a couple of wise sayings. One is there's a wisdom in a multitude of counselors. You ever hear that saying? In Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. In other words, let your yes be yes, but don't surround yourself with yes men. Don't just look for relational input by those who are going to affirm everything you think or say or do. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Do you have the kind of friends who you trust enough to actually give permission to give you critical feedback? Not feedback to tear down, but to build you up and make your relationship better. That's godly wisdom. And Eliezer solicits it from Laban before going a step further with Rebecca. Fortunately, in verse 50, it's interesting, but Laban uh, answers, this is from the Lord. We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here's Rebecca. Take her and go. And let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. When Abraham's servant heard what they said, he bowed down to the ground before the Lord. That's always a proper response when God answers a prayer. You worship, especially in the critical task of finding a spouse. But the story ends um, with, you know, three final little RPMs here. Because the next day, it's kind of, you just skip down. Just look at verse 55. But next day, you think you got this thing. They're ready to go back. Eliezer is up. He's ready to go. Take Rebecca with him. But in verse 55, Laban and her mom reply, no, no, let the girl remain with us for 10 days or so. You take your camels. Um, but let her hang out here. We're not ready to let her go just yet. Unhealthy family attachment, anybody? But he said to them, do not detain me. Now that the Lord has granted success to my journey, send me on my way so that I may go to my master. Then they said, well, let's call the girl and ask her about it. Verse 58. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? Three words she said. What is it? I will go. And this closing detail surfaces that you know your date is worth keeping when he or she is actually ready to leave and cleave. 
No unhealthy family attachments or attitudes that are keeping them from actually stepping into a future that's actually known only to God. Some of us like the idea of marriage. (laughs) We play around with it, you know, but we're not emotionally actually even ready for it. We're not. And to get married prematurely as a way of escaping a situation or to put at bay feelings of loneliness is just a recipe for disaster. As, you, know, as, you know what they say, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> you have to be ready in every respect, spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially, stability-wise, to enter into marriage. And if you can't imagine life without your parents, you're not ready. That's nothing against your mom or dad. But that's God's design. When God ordained marriage back in Genesis chapter 2, he actually said, for this reason, a man will leave mom and dad and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh, new family. In other words, you have to be ready to leave your parents, your past, and your fears behind and cleave and be joined to your new husband or wife. You can't bring anything with you. You're actually starting a new reality, a new family. The other book that I recommend to you, it's a phenomenal book with a depressing title. It's called The Singlehood Phenomenon. I bought it for the subtitle. Ten Brutally Honest Reasons People Aren't Getting Married. (laughs) And it's actually a hopeful book, despite its title. In that it just kind of calls out all the crippling attitudes and distorted thinking that are frequently obstacles for singles hesitant to get married. I'll give you a sampling. Again, these are just the titles of the chapters, ten chapters. It's pretty easy. Reason number one, skepticism about love and marriage. I don't know about this. I'd rather be alone than in a bad marriage. Yeah, I know. Most of us, half of us, more than half of us come from divorced homes. And you're like, I don't even know about this whole marriage thing. Until you come to terms with that and process through that, do not get married. Reason number three, unresolved issues from the past. It's like I always seem to attract unhealthy people or something. (laughs) Some of us know this, what it's like to have, okay, we all have smash-ups, but smash-up after smash-up after smash-up, I'm starting to feel like there's a cul-de-sac here that I'm driving around in. (laughs) Is it me or is it maybe? Unresolved issues from the past, if you can connect the dots here. Reason number six, a fear of getting hurt. Maybe you were hurt and you're like, I just don't want to get hurt again. You get married, you're getting hurt. <laughs> Guaranteed. Ryan, amen? Amen. <laughs> a very quiet amen. Is he? And Chris is like, what? <laughs> you're going to get hurt. That's the nature of the, of the relationship. And if that's going to be crippling to you, I don't want to be hurt again because I've never worked through or seen what healthy conflict is like. Don't get married. Because you need to begin developing those gifts and abilities prior to that. Reason number seven, wanting the perfect mate. I hear this a lot of times, right, from, uh, this, is, this is great, I hear this a lot of times for, for, you know, from the ladies. Well, no, I mean, he's nice and all, but I don't want to be a perfectionist. I mean, I'm just being picky. God wants the best for me, you know? You claim it, and you want it, and I'm waiting for the perfect mate, and it's like you wait for the perfect mate, and what God brings to your door, it's like, no, I'm waiting, I'm holding out, and I'm, what's happening here? For men, reason number nine, an unbalanced focus on career. How many of you, I have friends tell me this all the time. Dude, I don't know. It's, you know, I just want to be a provider. I just want to be established before I get married. You have to be willing to leave every one of these fears and attitudes behind in order to move forward. There is no doubt that Rebecca had many fears and concerns since everything happened within the span of 48 hours. <laughs> and although her brother and mother wanted Rebecca to linger, she didn't hesitate. When she knew God was in it, she said simply, I will go. I'm ready. I'm ready to leave, and I am ready to cleave. And get this. It was to a man she'd never even met. And there's no doubt Eliezer was a nice guy. I'm sure she she appreciated the nose ring. But Rebecca was willing to entrust her future to God and to a godly man. 
with someone she didn't fully know, nor could safely predict how it would all go. And guess what, folks? That's the reality of marriage. <laughs> that no matter what due diligence you do beforehand, no matter how much you think you know the other person, at the end of the day, it is a leap of faith. And either you've surrendered yourself to God and are trusting him to fill in the cracks and bond two imperfect people together, or you're not. It's kind of neat, but when Rebecca returns to meet Isaac, there's this incredible trust in God's design that supersedes all the uncertainties that undoubtedly he also had. It's verse 67. I'll just finish with it. She approaches. He's in the field. He sees her, and, she, and she's like, who is that over there? And that's your husband-to-be. In verse 67, it says, Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebecca. So she became his wife, and he loved her. I want you to imagine... Here come the 10 camels back. We probably now have 20 since she's coming with the dowry. She's got the veil over and everything. She comes up, this climactic moment. Eliezer's poured everything, his life, into finding this woman for her, brings her. And Isaac's like, all right, go ahead. And she undoes the veil. And he's like, no, 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 no. Um, dude, did, did my dad print out my Match.com profile? Because this, this is not what I, what I, was, what I was looking for here. I, I, I enjoy running my fingers through red hair. Uh, not brown. I, I want my money back. You know, I, I know we can't relate to the notion of an arranged marriage, committing to spend one's life with someone sight unseen. But the truth is this. Marriage is an act of faith. In many ways, as much as believing in God is. For all you can see before you, and you're pledging, though, to spend your life with another. I'm going to give my heart and trust it to you to care and provide for with God's help. And that was what Isaac does here. I have no doubt he had certain expectations himself a certain look or a specific hope that his wife would embody. But at the end of the day, folks, no matter how beautiful Rebecca was, Isaac undoubtedly had to adjust his expectations, willing to adjust my expectations. Because reality never fits our dreams. It doesn't work that way. It was never meant to be. That's a part of growing up too. Realizing that, you know what, I actually don't make God in my image. I'm made in his. And in the same way, I don't conjure up the criteria for a perfect husband or the ideal woman woman, and then I sit and wait and reject what God brings to me with, oh, no, I don't think so, with a wave of our hands. That's actually called ingratitude. And it's short-sightedness. This is the opposite. I'm talking about broadening the pool. Because marriage is the beginning of the journey, not the realization of some dream. And both potential husband and wife will have to be willing to trust God, both of us, with the unknown. Isaac came from a long line of people who knew what it was like to wait, huh? The reason he was named Isaac, you know what Isaac means? What's it mean? Anyone know? When God told Abraham they were going to have a boy, his wife, Sarah, you know what her response was? <laughs> Come on. I'm 90? You're 100? We're going to have a baby? <laughs> and God said, did you laugh? And he said, oh, no, I didn't laugh. You laughed. And I want you to name that boy Isaac, which means laughter. Tonight I realize some of us may be doubting God's ability to provide in this area. That you've had more pain than pleasure when it comes to relationships. And that you're, you know, maybe you're getting older and you're losing hope. Don't harden your heart. Don't laugh at God. Don't scoff at God's ability to come through for you. He knows you. He cares about you. And you are not alone. Every hair on your head he has numbered, and he knows your desires, your dreams, your strengths, and your flaws, and he's plotting, while you don't even know it, your future. Even though it may not feel that way, or you can't see what's in store, God can. I know alone the plans I have for you. And they're to prosper you, to bless you, to give you hope in a future. You can call upon me. I will, 
I will answer when you seek me with all your heart. What was it like to wait 100 years to have a baby? What was it like to wait at home while some servant of God was out and about making arrangements to bring the mate of God's choosing? What was happening during all that time in Isaac's mind? And folks, this is where reason and planning fall short. Because in the end, it's God who provides for your every need, including those of a mate. And for many of us, that's a joy God may bring you at some point. If you can, even if you can only see it in the distance, like across the desert, like some mirage. But for others, there may be a joy in singleness, a closeness to God during your solo season where God is actually closer to you than any human being is capable of. Either way, he cares. He loves you. He knows. And he's plotting to bless you, not to harm you, to give you hope in a future. And in the meantime, your job is simply to know him to call upon him, pray, and commit your heart to the one who can meet your deepest desires. So be encouraged tonight. And be expectant. Let's stand and pray together, okay? Lord, we thank you for your word. I want to thank you for each man and woman here. Lord Jesus, for every single person here, Lord. Plant hope in them tonight. Water it with your Holy Spirit, Jesus. You have a plan for each one of us. You know it. It's a blueprint, Lord. We can't see it. Give us eyes. Give us faith, Lord God. I thank you so much, Lord, for giving us godly counsel and forging a relationship that's, that's meant to be more than just um, another statistic, but one that reflects the love of Christ Jesus for his church. Lord, I pray that you'd be with each um, married couple here tonight, that you would bless them as they go out, recommit them, Lord, to the things that allowed them to have that relationship in the first place. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We want to desire you and expect you to add everything to us. We thank you for that promise, Jesus, in your name.